Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books Network. I'm Jim Cates. Our guest today is Jonathan D. Fitzgerald. He is an author of the new book, How the News Feels, The Empathic Power of Literary Journalists, uh, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the program today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, indeed. And I wonder if you could maybe start out by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. I know you're a, you're an academic at, at Regis College in Massachusetts, but you have done a number of other things in the writing endeavor. And uh, if you could tell us how you, how you came to academic study and specifically the, the study of literary journalism. Sure thing. Happy to do it. Uh, so my story really begins um, when I was looking into um, college, so many, many years ago now, and I was really torn between uh, studying English literature and writing or study, studying journalism. And uh, in a, uh, a college tour that I, that I was on at Emerson College, actually here in Boston, uh, one of the students was telling me about what it's like to be a journalism student and the hard hitting news and the interviewing people. And as a sort of timid 17 or 18 year old, I thought, oh my gosh, that's not me. Uh, I, be- I better stick with English. And so I, I t- chose a different college and a different major and ended up becoming an English major and really focusing on writing. Uh, so right after college, I went to the University of Massachusetts um, in Boston and did a master's degree in creative writing. And at that point I was focusing on fiction but it wasn't long before that sort of hankering to, to do journalism came back. And uh, I sort of put away the fiction for a while and began writing first sort of op-ed type pieces. And then I began writing some journalistic uh, pieces and sort of training myself um, to, to be able to do that and sort of using the experience that I had as, as a fiction writer um, and bringing it into journalism. And so uh, I did that for many years uh, while sort of adjuncting and teaching and working in writing centers Um uh, in sort of just sort of spanning that space between creative writing and, and journalism. Um, I worked at a, a small uh, sort of hyper-local uh, news publication when I lived in Jersey City called the Jersey City Independent, which unfortunately no longer exists. Uh, and then I did a lot of freelancing at the Wall Street Journal and The Atlantic, and I wrote book reviews for the Star Ledger and a bunch of things like that. And so, I, you know, it, it sort of went on like that for a while until I realized academia was really where I wanted to go and wanted to be teaching full-time. And to do that, it felt like I needed to do a PhD. And so I kind of came to that decision point again, just as I had right before college when I said, all right, is it, is it journalism or is it, or is it English? And uh, I sort of explored both paths, but ended up um, sort of at this really happy medium uh, at Northeastern University where I did a PhD in English. And I worked with a scholar named Ryan Cordell, who studies 19th century um, newspapers and specifically virality in 19th century newspapers. Um, he's the head of a project called the Viral Text Project, which I was happy to join when I was at Northeastern and there I was able to find, you know, sort of that, that happy medium, like I said, of that space where I was in English and studying literature, but I was studying journalism as literature. And of course, um, found my way into thinking about literary journalism as a genre. And um, it, it sort of took off from there. So that's the, the, the sort of origin story. Um, and this, of course, this work, um, this book it started off as my dissertation. 
And of course, when when many of us think of the genre of literary journalism today, we might think of uh, the the new journalism mm-hmm. authors like uh, Truman Capote, Gay Talese, Tom Wolfe, right. Hunter Thompson. And of course, it's so much wider than that in many ways. And you, of course, are focusing on women authors, mm-hmm. uh, many of whom, or well, some of whom at least, we would uh, obviously uh, recognize others, maybe not. And you write that your study was inspired by a professor's question, and she asked, where are all the women? <laughs> yes. And your book, at, at least in one part, is an attempt to, to correct the marginalization of women authors in their own day, and also in the scholarly scholarly assessments of literary journalism ever since. And uh, do you feel like you've had an impact in that area? And how'd you, how'd you get into that specific focus? Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, Professor Carla Kaplan at um, Northeastern University, uh, who I was working with and sort of putting together a reading list on literary journalism. And we sort of compiled everything that we could find in the different anthologies that were out there. And, and yeah, and, and she, you know, she was an astute observer and, and looked at it and said, this is something is missing here. And, and it was at the same time that I was looking at, into the 19th century through the viral text project and thinking about the kind of writing that was happening there and, and, and turning my attention towards sentimentalism. And it did seem to me that there was um, this sort of just missing piece when it came to how we were thinking about literary journalism. And you're exactly right, too, to point to those sort of the new journalism of the 60s and 70s as, as for many people, the starting point. But, um, I, of course, I was, I was realizing this goes back much further. Um, and, in, in fact, the new journalism, uh, as Tom Wolfe dubbed it, was the second new journalism. There was a new journalism at the end of the 19th century. So, but yes, uh, but then it, yeah, this sort of emphasis in bringing uh, women into the conversation, you had asked whether that was starting to have an effect. And I, I saw that this was definitely a need uh, when I first submitted an article to uh, Literary Journalism Studies, which is the journal of the International Association for Liter- Literary Journalism Studies. It's a mouthful. And that article um, was really, really well received. And it seemed to me that like I was on to something and it felt like there was definitely going to be a space for this work. Found yourself a niche there. That, I, did, I did. That definitely needed filling. I, I wanted to quote uh, also uh, 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 John Hartsock, mm-hmm. who's, uh, whose work is... Uh, contained a phrase that becomes sort of a cornerstone of your book you refer to several times. Uh, He wrote something called The History of American Literary Journalism, published uh, 20 years ago. And he says, literary journalism aims, quote, to narrow the gulf between subjectivity and an objectified world. And he says this strategy is, in effect, the opposite of an objectified journalism. How does this definition shape your study? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have such deep affection for John as a scholar, uh, you know, when I saw what he was doing. And then I've had the, the wonderful opportunity to meet him several times at, at um, literary journalism conferences. And he's retired now, but still hanging around. And, and, and he's been so receptive and kind and, and warm and welcoming to my work and seeing that I was sort of building off of what he was doing, but also sort of filling in, in like you said, the space that needed to be filled. But to that point, um, yeah, th- this notion that literary journalism uh, can act as a connector Right, that we think about journalism as uh, uh, needing to be objective, right, needing to be this sort of view from nowhere. But actually, it's always this tension of well, nobody actually 
can do that fully. And there always is some kind of subjectivity as part of that, uh, as part of the storytelling that happens within journalism. Uh, and so I think literary journalism allows us to sort of recognize that and maybe even lean into it a little bit. Um, and I, I think, you know, John's quote in this idea of, um, I, I often also say to his, his idea of narrowing the gulf between the subjectivities of writers and readers and subjects is this idea that we can sort of come together over a piece of literary journalism, that it can, it can help us and expose us to the view of somebody that we don't know, a perspective that we uh, haven't thought about or maybe don't fully understand and make something like empathy happen uh, in that space. The uh, the genre, if you can, you could put it together as a yeah. genre, I guess, and it goes back at least to the 1830s. So this is a long history and deals in, in that period in the 1830s, 1840s with a, a period personally as an American historian, I find interesting myself. I remember the title of, of one book about the period called Freedom's Ferment, uh, a lot of social experimentation, kind of idealistically driven uh, in those those decades before the Civil War. And then, of course, we have some very interesting social and technological developments going mm-hmm. on. Uh, one of them is what we call the cult of true womanhood. Mm-hmm. And that was a pathbreaking article. I remembered that from my yeah. studies, the cult yeah. of true womanhood. At the same time, we have the rise of the penny press mm-hmm. and this this uh, genre or the approach, I guess, of what you call moral sentimentalism. Mm-hmm. And this is a, sort of a, a proving ground that lays the, lays the foundation for uh, women in journalism coming into the field, writing some of these uh, works that attempt to bridge the gap between, you know, a just the facts approach right. and uh, a fuller accounting. Um, one of them, uh, Catherine Williams, Fall River, an authentic narrative, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of the fallen women. So even before the Civil War, this is a really interesting period. And th- this is uh, this is a formative period mm-hmm. for what would become uh, literary journalism. Is that right? Yeah. That is correct. And I love the way that you asked that question, because it really does. I mean, I, I could hear you sort of juggling all the pieces that for years I was juggling so that you have, you know, this sort of women, uh, this idea of separate spheres and sort of women emerging out of the private sphere and into the public sphere and sort of all that that entails, that sort of cultural shift. At the same time, the technological shift that's enabling the penny press and these sort of, um, you know, uh, the changes that are happening to the newspaper industry and into journalism uh, are happening at the same time. And, and then, yes, uh, 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 Catherine Williams is sort of operating uh, as a as an author who's sort of doing journalism work, work, but not in the newspapers, and so that's that's kind of a new and novel idea. And so yeah, it was sort of an amazing time where all these really interesting things are happening. Um, and I just you know of all of many things, I think literary journalism is one of the things that emerges from there. And it just you know it was one of those eye opening moments where you see okay, I understand what literary journalism is today. Um, how did it get to be this way? And so many of the threads that um, you know that are sort of wound in, into the into the genre today uh, have their start there, um, yeah. and, and you know, in the ones that you mentioned. And and I was always trying to balance that. Like there are cultural shifts happening, there are technological shifts happening, um, and then uh, you know, this all you know, all like you say before the Civil War. So we know what's sort of fermenting there too. It it, it is a really interesting time. And I I didn't even begin to tie in temperance. Yeah, abolitionism right. 
and later, of course, uh, the drive for votes for women, which yes. all were sort of intertwined here. And of yes. course, there's a there is something of an irony, I guess, in that the 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 women who championed the the true sphere, the cult of true womanhood, a lot of them uh, obviously transcended those limits and went out into the world. Catherine Williams great example becomes yep. the literary editor of Horace Greeley's New York Tribune, which is no small feat. Sure. Oh, that's um, Mar- uh, Margaret Fuller, but yes. Oh, Margaret Fuller, excuse yep. me. Yep. Yes. Yep. Catherine Another Williams, author I, of, the period, of the period, yep. yes. Right. So Catherine Williams, I kind of have, so she's interesting because she, there's not a lot of work on Catherine Williams and she is, I, I think of as sort of like a proto-literary journalism um, when she, with the work that she's doing. But yeah, Margaret Fuller is so interesting because has these sort of roots in the sort of transcendental movement. She's friends with Emerson. She edits The Dial. And then she says at some point, uh, you know, in one of her letters, I, I want to have the ear of the nation. And I think the best way to do that is through journalism. And so, yeah, there's this full emergence out of that um, I mean, she was sort of never, one that was never really uh, comfortable sort of being put in a box and into a private sphere anyways. She was always going to be mm-hmm. out there in the public. Uh, but she felt like the newspaper was the best way to do that. And I love that moment because it's that uh, – and, you know, Emerson actually gives her a little bit of a hard time about it. Oh, the newspaper, well, you know, that's not that's not the, the real thing. This is – you know, you should be focusing on literature. So even then, that conflict between literature and journalism is there. And I, and I and that moment where she says, no, I'm going to go from the dial, this you know, literary magazine – in, you know, into Horace Greeley's uh, newspaper and into journalism is such a is such a cool move and such a great origin story. I think for a lot of uh, what's to follow. And when when we go past the Civil War, then uh, we run into the name of the, the, the probably the most recognized of the journalists of the nineteenth century. Which of course, was Nellie Bly, right. young woman from Pittsburgh who uh, objects to this uh, editorial newspaper talking about women's fear and stuff. And the editor invites her in. She begins to write and away she goes. Within months, she's gone for New York. And uh, what was the note she listened to? I'm off to New York. Watch for me. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So obviously you get the, the, the very strong impression that, well, I guess as they say, uh, the the women who behave seldom make history. I, I think right. that's true with men too. Actually, right. uh, these are unusual people. They have an enormous drive. But as you mentioned, Nellie Bly was a little different in that she was not shy about casting herself as part of the story. She was a character in the story, uh, an observer. She talked about her her personal feelings, reader, let me relate this to you. Mm-hmm, her, mm-hmm. her first big path-breaking experiment in journalism is uh, going and observing the, the, the insane asylum on Blackwell's yeah. Island right. in New York, which made her famous, uh, publishes a book as 10 Days in a Madhouse. And it got to the point where her name, of course, would even be repeated in the headlines, and yeah. she would become a proponent of this so-called stunt journalism right. with the uh, the backing of Joseph Pulitzer, and of course would would circle the globe in less than 80 days to beat out uh, <laughs> beat right. Jules Verne's fictional account. So we see journalism expanding here, and the the rise, of course, of I guess what we would call celebrity journalists in in, yeah. in the form of folks like Nellie Bly. Yeah, I I I love that moment where um, you know it, it's in the span of fifty years, and there's this great sort of parallel um, because of course uh, Margaret Fuller visits Blackwell's Island. Um, she you know and, and has this really I don't know much more sort of proper 
you know, traditional sort of what you would think of as 19th century sentimental look at what's, she, you know, what, what's there and, and really pleading with readers to, to, to look with me and, and see and observe and feel, right? And then by the end of the century, you have Nellie Bly going in there. First of all, it's, it's a stunt, right? She goes in, uh, pretends to be, uh, to be insane, um, gets herself, uh, you know, committed into, into the asylum. Um, I, don't, and, I don't know, but, uh, uh, to interrupt for a moment, I, sure, I don't know if you uh, can confirm or deny something I read somewhere. Mm-hmm. Nellie Bly actually did such a good job of feigning insanity that when she wanted to leave after 10 days or so, she had to bring her editor in to vouch for her that she was not insane. Yes. I, well, I know for sure a part of that that is true is that her editor did need to. Um, yeah. I mean, that was sort of the, the way to, to get out. I don't know. This is a, such an interesting question because it didn't take much, as it turns out, to get a woman committed in the 19th century on Blackwell's yes, Island. Absolutely. And this is part of what Nellie Bly is seeing is that, no, I mean, half of these women are not insane. I was actually just... Uh, telling my, my daughter's name is Penelope. We call her Nellie. And so she's very, she has a, a great affinity for Nellie Bly. And I was telling her a little bit about this story and, um, and was saying that, you know, she encountered people there that just didn't speak English. And it was like, well, they must be crazy. <laughs> so they're in. And so I don't know that, I mean, she would have had to have been a tremendous actress. Uh, and, it, and she says this several times throughout the story that it just, you know, they're looking right at me. How do they not see? And I, I and she's acknowledging I'm not that good good at pretending here it just didn't take much is really the <laughs> is really the story but it is true that she had to um yeah she had to have uh, her editor vouch for her to to get her out of there but yeah it's such an interesting case because she doesn't she i think the effect ends up being very similar to what margaret fuller is doing but the approach is just so completely different mm-hmm. margaret fuller is really directing the attention away from herself and onto the people that she's seeing and um as i say in the book Nellie bly really makes herself the mirror by which you can see the people that she's there with but you see them through her you know, you have to see her first, uh, but still, you know, has tremendous uh, effect. And she takes a lot of credit for bringing on reform in the system, you know, to what extent that, you know, that that's on her. Um, it's hard to say, but she certainly does become very famous after that as well. All of this takes uh, something of a, a negative turn after the start of the 20th century. Hmm. We see the rise of the, the idea of objectivity in journalism. This is coupled yeah. with the movement for scientific progress and data and objectivity, the idea that this enormous faith in facts and fact finding and expertise that arose with the progressive era. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Lincoln Steffen's quote in his autobiography, facts, facts piled up to the point of dry certitude. And all of a sudden, moral sentimentalism certainly fell out of style in, in literature. Uh, we do not see uh, the uh, the kind of uh, kind of sappy novels and such that we had seen uh, about topics such as temperance, for example, and, and and people are put more faith in the idea that we can solve problems scientifically. Right, and we have women journalists, and actually there are quite a few of them at the time. You're talking about a couple thousand of them at work mm-hmm. by then yep. in the United States. Right. Those who are not confined to in, in home and you know, home and hearth kind of topics mm-hmm. are still out there covering some good stuff, including the trial of Harry Thaw, mm-hmm. who killed the architect Stanford White. Right. And 
among other things, I was I was kind of surprised to see that the 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 major New York newspapers all committed women, some women, to covering this, specifically because of Thaw's wife, yeah. and they were all sequestered at one table together. <laughs> but their work was derided, yeah. and they were they were derided as sob sisters. Right, that's the term that became in vogue at the time. Mm-hmm. And so they were labeled this way. It was not a compliment. Right. Their work was considered to be sappy, frivolous, uh, appealing only to the emotions and not the facts that we want. And in a, in a way, it was sort of a setback for women in literary journalism. Was it not that that time period? Yeah, I think so. So there's a, a few really good points to pull out there. And um, the one is that uh, I really try to distinguish in the book between um, sort of a couple different forms of sentimentalism, sentimentalism as like an ethos. And that's what you're referring to moral sentimentalism, right? And this sort of goes back to, to Hume and to Adam Smith. And, and then there's this other sentimentalism that uh, you're thinking about in terms of the domestic novel, right? The sentimentalism as a literary style. And the fact is, is that both of them kind of take a hit around this time. Uh, this sort of a more objective approach in journalism takes over the sort of more realist approach, um, you know, and there's some debate about what, what kind of realism we're talking about here, but the sort of more realist approach in literature becomes uh, in vogue. And yeah, and, and that does not go well for people who are sort of still working in that style. Um, though, interestingly, it never really goes away. Uh, but yeah, it becomes something that you can sort of point at and deride. And this is certainly the case with the so-called sob sisters, all of whom hated that term, by the way, it should be noted. Um, and it comes from Irvin Cobb, who is sort of, uh, you know, observing them, observing the trial um, and saying that this is what they're there for is basically to, to get their readers to cry with um, primarily Evelyn uh, Nesbitt Thaw, Thaw's wife. Um, as she's a, a sort of central character in this story. And so, yeah, it, it, it suddenly is not, uh, it's it's frowned on to sort of try to touch the emotions of readers. And at the same time, it's still very, very popular. You know, I was, I was thinking yeah. about this recently in terms of like romantic novels. They go through periods where like, it's, you know, it's, it's very not cool to like or to read r- romantic novels. And yet they never really lose popularity. It's just no, sort of no. how they're viewed. And yeah. I think that, that that's a kind of a good corollary for what's going on here too, is people, people loved these stories. These women did uh, really, really great work. They were really successful. They really connected with their readers. And yet you'd have somebody like Cobb, you know, derided as, as, as weak and as, you know, sob sisters. And the, 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 the trial in the, uh, of the killing of Stanford White too was, I would think one that would lend itself to, I guess, what we would call today sort of sort of personality analysis, yeah. because because uh, uh, Thaw himself was, uh, as you say, sort of a, a, an awkward figure. I guess mm. could we almost call him a man child of sorts? Yeah, his, that's how he's described. Yeah, his his wife was much younger than him. Uh, she was often called an artist's model, which she was, and uh, it apparently was assaulted by Stanford White, which is why Thaw shot him in the back mm-hmm. at a gathering in New York. And this is not something that lends itself completely to objective, just the facts kind of treatment. There's a real story here, and it actually is a rather compelling one. 
It is. It is. That's well said. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a sensational story. Uh, it's, you know, it, these are celebrities of the time. Um, and so it, it was definitely that sort of attention grabbing thing. And, and, um, and it mattered. It mattered who the people were in the story in a way that, um, you know, sometimes if you, if you sort of want to be objective and put people in the particular boxes, I mean, I might argue that it's, it's always sort of a value to, to get to know and to try to empathize with actors in a news uh, story. But in this case in particular, it, it just really was. And, and that character of Evelyn, uh, part of the work that, so I, I look specifically at Winifred Black um, as one of these, uh, you know, again, so-called sob sisters. Um, and she just goes to, to extreme effort to say like this romantic view of her, this idea of artist model is not what you think it is. And she, she said, you know, she gives a, a sort of more accurate picture that allows us to, um, to sort of strip away the stereotypes that might come with these um, sort of celebrity roles and see the people as people. And I think that that's what was really powerful about her contributions to this reporting. You look at uh, one of the many fascinating things about studying history as you go back and you look at events that happened in, at the same time, yet in very different places under very different circumstances. At the same time, Truman Capote was headed out to Kansas to write In Cold Blood. Hmm. And that, as you know, is a story in itself. That's right. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, hmm. who was nearing the end of her career, celebrated a poet and novelist. Uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, her most yep. famous work. Uh, one of the pillars of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, nearing the end of her career, is commissioned to write a series for the Pittsburgh Courier, mm -hmm. a very prominent uh, a black newspaper aimed mm -hmm. at, at African-American readers, and uh, about the killing of a, a white doctor by a black woman, That's which right. would uh, was treated by the press. It got a, it got a lot of coverage around the mm -hmm. nation mm -hmm. as essentially a, a murder case uh, with some elements of intrigue to it, but not much beyond that. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston's, I think, there were, as, as you mentioned, there were like 10 articles and all, and they have now been compiled in book form. Mm -hmm. And of course, many people would never see them right. unless they went to an archive someplace. And now they're compiled right. in, in book form uh, uh, by the story, the historian Henry Louis Gates. Uh, so they're gaining new attention. Yeah. This is this is the beginning, or at least it, 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 uh, one of the examples you give of what it means to employ and to to look seriously at intersectionality mm -hmm. in journalism, in 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 coverage of, in this case, of a murder case, because it, it's it's difficult to separate the two selves here mm -hmm. of. Oh, in in this case, Ruby McCollum right. was both African American and a woman. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say she was poor. She was not poor. She was a fairly right. prominent citizen in her mm -hmm. community, but uh, she had a lot of strikes against her, mm -hmm. which only a uh, I think a, 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 and just these these little excerpts you run are very mm. compelling and you think, yeah. oh, this is beautiful writing as I guess we would expect. Yeah. Uh, but so it takes someone with the talent and the insight of Zora Neale Hurston to really unravel this. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the the fascinating thing to me about that story, the Ruby McCollum story is that, you know, it's pre-written. We have, and this is why I sort of look at this notion of master narratives is we have types for, for every character in this story that we can just sort of put them in into this box mm -hmm. and this goes in this box and you know so it didn't 
the the trial yeah, there was two trials the first one it's you know kind of a farce because everybody just sort of knew oh yeah well of course of course she did it you know of mm-hmm. course she would do this and the reason was clear they were fighting over a bill yeah that makes sense you know what i mean mm-hmm. so the, the so what what hurston was able to do is get down there and look for the the real story and see ruby mccollum as a full person right and again this is a is this is where i bring into the book that that notion of intersectionality because that's what mccollum uh, that's what Hurston is doing for McCollum is saying, no, let's look at her and let's tell her whole story. And so it ends up being the life story of Ruby J. McCollum, because that's all important in order to understand this last bit of her life, right? This sort of last event, which is that when, when she kills uh, Dr. Adams and yeah. And I, and I just think that you see Hurston really working against those kind of types um, that the, the box that, that everybody wanted to put her in. And then, you know, of course, Hurston herself is working against the types that people are trying to put her in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and, and her career sort of takes a different angle at that, at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you said, it was towards the end of, of, of her work. Fast forward a little bit. Sure. Uh, to a woman I would think of as the exact opposite of a sob sister, yeah. Joan Didion. Yeah. Magazine writer. Mm-hmm. Again, we're looking at a little bit of technological determinism here yep. because she comes of age. This is sort of like something out of a Malcolm Gladwell story. You know, nothing ever happens in isolation. Right, there are right. larger factors that compel this. She comes of age right as television does. In the mid-1950s, by the time she writes her first article for, was it, I think, Vogue magazine, about two-thirds of the homes in America have television, and this is like 55, 56, mm. and magazines are beginning to realize, uh, I think particularly of life and look, they are beginning to realize that the writing is on the wall for general interest magazines that are supposed to appeal to absolutely everyone. Yeah. Absolutely everyone. Life with its weekly circulation read by millions of people Mm -hmm. when you include the pass along value. Uh, This great, big, enormous magazine that sold for a dime and reached everyone from the janitor to the corporate CEO had an enormously wide audience. And again, we see the rise now of magazines. You mentioned some of the big ones in the 50s. Playboy, Sports Illustrated, Mm -hmm. Mad Magazine. Right. Yeah, well, the, the notion that it's they're specializing. I mean, yeah. that's really that's really what's happening here is that that general that general audience is gonna is gonna watch TV, and uh, you know, if you want to if you want to continue to survive, you sort of have to to fo- to focus up on on a particular subject. And yeah. and and we see even more specialization specialization in terms of politics, in terms of voice, mm-hmm. in terms of geographical point of view, in terms Correct. of hobbies, interests. And this is the world into which Joan Didion dives and starts. And of course, the social climate at the time beginning to heat up. Mm -hmm. And she's the person who explains America to itself in the 60s and 70s and later. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, there couldn't be this, this book could not exist without Joan Didion. Like it had, she had to be there. And as, as much as I was really trying to stay away from the new journalism and really, you know, give this broader sense of what literary journalism has been and, and, and is, um, and, you know, uh, it's not a history, but I wanted to give the, the, the whole scope of things. I knew that Joan Didion had to be there. Plus, I just love Joan Didion. So, of course. And that is why, though, so it's, it's true. I have this 
sort of line throughout the book where I'm looking at the sort of technological changes that are enabling media change that is enabling literary journalism to take on its sort of different angle. And so that is the world into which Joan Didion comes. And yet when I pick uh, Joan Didion up in the book, it is later. It's after the the new journalism stage. It's after she's already become famous with the White Album and, you know, in, in a series of great books and his ventured into fiction um, and to really look at um, the, the end of the 1980s when she's um, writing about uh, the Central Park jogger case. And it, it is, um, it's still, it's still vintage Joan Didion. She's still doing that Joan Didion thing, but it's uh, yeah. I wanted to start, like I said, I wanted to sort of move outside of the, the new journalism era um, and, and see her doing this work, but you're, but you're right. Is as far as could uh, you could imagine from a sob sister and she didn't she wouldn't want any kind of association with that and um i i think you know if i don't think that she'd like being called sentimental uh, even and so i had to do some justification work there to say uh, in, in the, the uh the piece that i'm looking at is sentimental journeys and and um she is using that in a in a sort of disparaging sense or in the sort of sense of nostalgia and, um, you know, syrupy sweet kind of thing. Um, and that is not at all how I'm using the term. So we had to sort of bring some term alignment into it. But I thought it made this sort of really good uh, moment to say that sentimentalism is alive and well in the 1980s. And it is not this sort of... Uh, well, Leslie Jameson, who I, who I love, a contemporary author, calls it a derogatory shortcut. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's not that. You know, that's not what we're talking about. That is how um, how Didion is using it, but that's not what I'm talking about. So I had to sort of bring these terms into alignment. And I and I and I think the case that I that I am able to make is that what she is doing in sentimental journeys is sentimental, <laughs> in mm-hmm. the sense that it, of moral sentimentalism as an ethos as opposed to a style. And of course, she's writing there about the the, the infamous Central Park jogger case. Right. And you know what's interesting to me is I I thought about that and then I did. I had to remind myself that yes, the uh, it did later turn out that the center, Central Park jogger was not, in fact, assaulted by those. It was five, right? Yeah, I, uh, yeah the Central Park Five. Yeah, the yeah. Central Park Five of the five young men who had done other things, but they did not assault the, the Central Park jogger, and right. that was found out years later. And it's funny the way. The original narrative so often sticks with us oh, because sure. it gets blown up larger than life. Uh, Donald Trump running ads in the New York Daily oh. newspapers calling for the reinstatement of the death penalty. Right. And I had to, I did have to remind myself, oh, yes, it did turn out differently. And this was a necessary corrective. But it wasn't everywhere. It was in the pages of the New York Review of Books, which is yeah. a little narrower. Yeah, right, right, and 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 that's even um, it would be years even after that that the that the true story comes out, um, and so you know, Didion here is not arguing for anybody's um, innocence or guilt. Um, she's just simply looking at the story and saying, look at the way in which the main characters here, um, the Central Park jogger herself, Trisha Mealy, and um, the 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 five men that became the Central Park Five. Look at the way that they are again, just sort of slotted into these stereotypes yeah. and, and this expectation of what they are supposed to be. And um, Trisha Maley becomes this uh, image of innocence and purity and everything that's good about New York City. That you know, mm-hmm. and then of course the men become the wolf pack, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and, and I'm calling the men. I mean, they were really boys; they were teenagers at the time, um, and they spent decades uh, in prison uh, as a as a result of this. Um, only to find out later, uh, actually, while one of them was in prison, the actual person who committed the crime, Matthias Reyes, confessed that he had done it. 
And I, you know, it, all of a sudden it seems to unravel. And yet I make this point um, in the book as well. It, even then, people who held on to that narrative, the story was so ingrained and it made so much sense in the mind of people who just wanted these people to, you know, these characters to fit the role that they had placed yes. them in yeah. that it didn't matter. I mean, it didn't mm-hmm. matter that the truth was out. They were still, you know, they were still the bad guys in this mm-hmm. case. It's, it's what uh, Stephen Colbert once referred to as truthiness. Truthiness. The, the yeah. idea that we want things to be true and we can want it very much to the point that it does uh, obscure the truth. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, and So there's been some good work in the years since actually sort of bringing this uh, to light, which is, which is really good. Um, uh, I'm trying to, oh, I'm, blanking on the film director's name there was just a a documentary that came out i think it was on hbo um sort of as i was in the editing stage of the book um that 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 tells the story by way of the um by way it's fictionalized but it's just is a really good account of the story and then it ends with the men themselves now you know grown men having spent all this time in prison um being exonerated And and it finally does i think give the right ending to the story you know, one trend that uh, that that goes through all all of these uh, lives and 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 work of these journalists through the years is there are still some who are part of the story. There are journalists who become the story. Those who, uh, I mean, we want to look at at a person who participated the most, I guess we'd probably look at Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, you know, we look back, for example, uh, uh, Truman Capote later mm-hmm. was derided for having been probably involved in the case of the, the, the killing of the Clutter family in Kansas in, mm-hmm. in cold blood mm-hmm. in ways he maybe shouldn't have insinuating himself with the, uh, the, the prison warden and in, indeed, one of the the the, the doomed uh, uh, men, one of the killers mm-hmm. in the uh, in, in this drama, and then you have you have those who were de- deliberately, you know, part of the story. People going all the way back to Nellie Bly, and then we come forward. We have Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. Yeah, uh, yeah, writes about essentially embeds herself with a family in the South Bronx yeah, for, for several decade. years. Yeah. Spends nights at their homes, goes to social events with them, uh, spends a lot of time doing, I guess, just what we would call hanging around, which is where the good stuff is. I think to the extent, the only modern parallel I can think of that was uh, a gay Talese in uh, Honor Thy Father, Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. essentially almost, he didn't become a member of the Bonanno family, but he spent a lot of time Mm in close quarters with them, uh, yeah. riding around in automobiles, in their houses. Uh, I believe he was actually present during one attempted hit. <laughs> and so there are people who who are present and make themselves a character. Then we have Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc. She is there, she's on the scene very closely, but she almost never inserts herself into the narrative. Yeah, it's pretty and remarkable. That's it curious. Is. And is, is, you find one approach more effective than the other? Or... Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it, it's really different. Um, yeah, what I want to say. Well, let me let me just back up for one second. It just for one thing, the um, it was Ava DuVernay who came um, and she did this. The document, the, the it wasn't a documentary. It was a film called When They See Us. Um, and it's I can't recommend it enough in terms of getting the full story of the Central Park Jogger case. So just to, mm-hmm. to sort of close that that part. But it's interesting too that you bring up 
uh, Capote because really a, a big reason why maybe the culture at large for a little while had turned on literary journalism is because of the sort of way that he maybe got too close to the story and, you know, and, and all that sort of un- unfolded there. And so it, it ends up sort of being, um, you know, I described the history of literary journalism sort of following other scholars in terms of waves. And after the 70s and sort of after, you know, that happens, we get this sort of dip um, before it comes back again. And, and, and certainly Adrian Nicole Blank is one of the, the people who brings it back. And, and she had written magazine stories. She's in the New York Times magazine quite a lot. But this book is, as you said, um, a, a, so over a decade's worth of, can you even call it reporting? I mean, just really fully being embedded. Um, she tells uh, a story about just sort of at times just leaving her tape and being too exhausted to interview and just leaving her tape recorder around and saying, just record yourself talking, you know? Um, it's, it's almost like sociology in a sense. Right. It's it's more thorough and better documented. Yep. Yep. And, um, and I think, and, and better uh, shaped into a narrative. And I think that's one of the things that I, I love so much about this book, Random Family by LeVonk, is that, you know, it's life and it, 10 years of life doesn't have a beginning, middle and end. It's just not mm-hmm. how it goes. Um, and, and she doesn't try to force one on this book, right? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have that either. But, and yet, man, the experience of reading it, I, I keep going back to the first time I picked it up and, and being on a bus driving, you know, riding in and out of Boston. And I, I would lose myself, forget where I was and just believe I was with these people. Um, and like you say, not with her because she's not there. She's not mm-hmm. present, uh, but you, she sort of disappears and allows you to become a part of the story. And uh, this gave me the opportunity in the book to talk about ways of knowing, you know, like how we can as journalists, how journalists can get to know their subjects. And certainly she she did that. And and and, um, and like I said, it's this amazing ability to sort of make herself invisible so that we can also know her subjects in the way that she really obviously did. It's a really, really powerful book. Uh, an area I'm, I'm not that familiar with because I guess it's still being shaped. And of mm-hmm. course, we can. We can always look at technological determinism when it comes to the internet. Mm. And you see in in the new, you, you call this a postmodern approach of the, the, what would we call this now? Are we on the new, new, new journalism, I think? Yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> at the, starting at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, a return to what you call verisimilitude, perhaps a little more discipline in terms of the facts a little less speculation. I wonder how that has turned. Mm. I think back, for example, yeah. to, uh, I, I am a great admirer of Gay Talis, uh, uh, although he, he, he kind of took a hit over the Voyeur's Motel, which is sure thing. Well, yeah. a story in itself. And all that also made into a, a documentary about the making of that, that book. Mm-hmm. But I think of Talis writing in the Kingdom and the Power, his first great book about the history of the New York Times, Times yeah. with Abe Rosenthal sitting mm-hmm. at his desk in that great big newsroom on 43rd Street and looking over the newsroom and supposedly thinking to himself, they must hate my guts. I know they hate <laughs> my guts. And of course, Talese had no way of knowing that. And yeah. I assume that Rosenthal did not tell him that in an interview. Talese got a little defensive later when asked about the Voyeur's Motel and and some some technical errors he had made in that. (laughs) And he says, listen, I tell stories, I take chances. If I never took chances, I wouldn't have written a damn thing. And so he was was kind of of a testy guy anyway who could be. I've I've seen him uh, interviewed. 
Is there that that new approach with the, the verisimilitude? And what do you see coming out of the web in terms of uh, you call it long form journalism that you right. apparently you see some promise in that? I do. I do. And it, this goes I mean, this goes right back to Capote again, I think. And in, in, in um, you know, there was this sense that if we're going to do it, if we're going to do literary journalism, if we're going to allow it, it, it's it, it, it can't be anything less than the sort of factual quality that we come to expect in objective journalism, especially since in a lot of cases, these things are published in the same places, you know? And so in this, in the 60s and 70s with the new journalism, you had uh, writers taking more chances in, again, these sort of more specialized magazines. But as that it moves out of those magazines, maybe back into um, newspapers or magazines associated with the newspapers like the Times Magazine, um, and then further onto the web, uh, there is this expectation that, yeah, it has to do both. It, it has to tell that that story it has to have the narrative features there needs to be character and plot and um and, and and setting it also has to be true and and of course these stories are now fact checked you know um to sort of avoid these problems so i do see that you know again going to uh, capote going to gig to lease and there's that great interview where he says you know maybe i was uh, a liar in kingdom and the power but and, and i wasn't caught uh, but I'm saying I didn't, you know, and which, which way is it? You know, and he, that sort of uh, intentional uh, open-endedness. But I do think that it, it, it's been good. I, I think it's a good sort of move where you expect now that you can get sort of verisimilitude, you can get truth from these stories. At the same time, you can get narrative, you can get the sort of compelling um, uh, emotion um, in, the, in the sort of sentimental aspects that have, have always been there. So I do think it's a good time. It's an interesting discussion about what to call it, because every time literary journalism goes away and comes back again, it gets a new name and everyone pretends like it never existed. So long reads was the thing, you know, and this is going back maybe now a decade, maybe a decade and a half where websites like long reads came up and, um, you know, it was again, it was like this sort of new thing. Can you believe that there's these true stories that are told in long form? It's incredible. Long form was another one of the phrases mm-hmm. that was used. So I do think that there are good things happening. I think that there is, is good work being produced. Um, and my my effort in, in all of that is always just to say, but wait, let's see the history. Let's acknowledge where this is coming from and not try to reinvent the wheel every time. Um, and it's also happening too in short form, which is interesting. I uh, had done some work uh, several years ago looking at uh, journalists who were using Instagram as a place to do this. And Jeff Charlotte, uh, the uh, great journalist uh, writer, was was amazing at this, would take these really provocative pictures and in the short spa- space that Instagram would give you for captions would tell this whole full story. And that felt like going back to 19th century sketches and these sort of short pieces. And so this notion too that it was sort of blowing open literary journalism to say it doesn't even have to be long now it can be these short sketches it can be tied to a photo of course there's a good history of that too in literary journalism so i do i think it's a great time um, for literary journalism and and there's more than ever to read and and more places to read it i uh uh, obviously looked at some of your bio and stuff online uh you're classified as a humanities professor at regis college and uh which as i like to say encompasses all the good stuff um, it's all the things, yeah. Uh, that's right. Literature, history, etc. But you, you also write at the beginning your early upbringing included attendance at a, a conservative Christian school. Yes, you can. Yeah. You, you can quote some chapter and verse of the Holy Bible, which which oh, it's in there. <laughs> which differentiate differentiates you from some authors. You you talked about approaching your subject with fear and trembling, um, which I could identify with. You know this idea that especially. I wrote about conservation, so and, mm-hmm. and in the early twentieth century, so you you think you find yourself in a sense of awe before your yeah. subject because you're thinking these people are all dead, 
and they can't speak for themselves anymore. And I have to speak for them. And that's an enormous responsibility. Uh, that and and now you teach at a small Catholic college, Regis College, uh, right. that enrolled only women until 2007. So right. I wonder how these these various influences have shaped your life as a scholar. Oh, it's such a wonderful question, and it, it, it's amazing. I mean, there the threads that sort of weave themselves together uh, throughout my my life and my story is just I can't even get over it. In fact, uh, getting the job at Regis after finishing my PhD at Northeastern opened up and shifted the direction of this book. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, I was sort of a, at a research university and I was doing a lot of research and was writing my dissertation. And it was really more, again, I think I was getting even closer to writing something like a history of literary journalism, still focusing on, on women writers. Um, and then one of the first courses uh, at Regis, which is a small uh, Catholic liberal arts college that had uh, several years before I got there, combined all of their humanities departments, history and English and theology into one humanities department, which is why that's my assignment. But And part of that, it's very interdisciplinary. And they looked at my background and I had written a short book called um, Not Your Mother's Morals, how the new sincerity is changing pop culture for the better, in which I was looking at sort of moral stories in pop culture. And uh, so they looked at that and said, oh, could you teach ethics? <laughs> and uh-huh. I said, yeah, yeah, I think I could do that. I think okay. I can. And so I, that's where I actually discovered and sort of like re-immersed uh, myself in moral sentimentalism mm-hmm. and ethics of care. And then that sort of gave the framework for the book. And so this way that that tied together is incredible. Um, and again, being in a humanities department, um, has allowed me the opportunity to teach religious studies classes because I was, a, as a journalist, I mostly covered religion and focused on that. And so that's been really neat to see that come back around. And the last piece of that is, as you mentioned, Regis was until 2007, a women's college. Uh, I am in the process of, and very near the end of actually a, a project I've been working on with students over several years to create an archive of the college's student newspaper, which ran from 1934 to 1993. That is an archive of exclu- exclusively of women's journalism mm-hmm. because it was a women's college. And so this sort of piece came together too, where I thought, look at, I'm writing this book about women journalists. And now I have this amazing resource of college aged women journalists, um, you know, writing right through all the, you know, the major eras in the, in the 20th century. It's just mm-hmm. really, really cool. And the, the way that the threads all come together, it's, it's amazing. Sounds wonderful. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for, talking with us today. Uh, it's been really interesting to, to meet you and learn about your work. And of course, to read your book, uh, give you another plug here. Jonathan D. Fitzgerald, How the News Feels, The Empathic Power of Literary Journalists. Uh, it is published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for being with us today. So good to thank talk you. to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for your interest in the book. Thank you for reading it. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I've really enjoyed it.